You know, it's been said that there, there are no hopeless circumstances. There's only hopeless people. Let me say that again. There are no hopeless circumstances. There's only hopeless people. But when people become hopeful, that's when the circumstance begins to change. In fact, if something is going to change, it's because somebody is hoping. Don't you find that true? You can be at the office, the workplace, and everybody just seems to be negative. It just takes someone to be hopeful. It just takes someone to kind of step out and see something a different way, to talk about things a different way, and things begin to change, or at least they had the potential to, because that person is an optimist. You know, sometimes we think the word optimist is just kind of this shallow, you know, positive thinking mindset, but in the English language, our word optimist actually comes from the Latin word optimum, which means the best. And so for a person to be optimistic, it means that they are optic, they, what they see See, optic, optimism, they see the best in everything. They're not blind, they just can see the gold, you know. They can see what can be mined in this situation. Or as a believer, they understand that God is at work. And God loves to use people who are unusually optimistic. I mean, just look at somebody like David. David didn't just say, okay, 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 nobody else is going to do it, I'll fight Goliath. David runs at him. David doesn't stand there with everybody else. He doesn't stand around talking to the experts. He basically says to them, what are you doing allowing this uncircumcised Philistine to you know, flaunt, the th flaunt his strength before God? I'll go down. God uses optimists like Peter, who steps out of the boat. He doesn't stay inside the boat and talk with all the guys about whether or not God still walks on water. No, he said, Jesus is out there. He's calling me. I'm coming. God uses people like Moses. What did Moses do? Here's the enemy army, Pharaoh's army is coming down toward the people. Everybody's in a panic. Moses is standing at the Red Sea. With the east wind, God causes through the night to part the waters. Hope is the one thing that will drive you to do what others won't do. In fact, to the degree that you have hope, you actually have influence, don't you? You, you change the climate. You change the atmosphere wherever you may be because you have hope. People recognize you as a person of influence because if they, if they want to see options or divine options in their situation or in their mood or in their relationship, you're the person they'll try to find. You know, when I came into Pentecost circles about 45 years ago, there were a whole lot of firsts that I experienced. It was the first time I had really experienced exuberant worship. It was the first time that I had uh, experienced hearing somebody speak in other tongues, as the Bible says in the New Testament in the book of Acts, first time. It was also the first time that I'd experienced an altar call in a church. I mean, I gave my heart to the Lord at the age of 10 at a Barry Moore crusade in Halifax. Uh, that was at, at Queen Elizabeth High School. But in a church, I'd never experienced an altar call until I came into a Pentecostal church. And let me say that some of those were particularly long altar calls uh, back in that day when I came in. But I can remember as the 14-year-old who came from a mainline church, something that kind of stood out to me. Amidst all the wonderful things that I enjoyed in the Pentecostal circles, in the Sunday night service, which back then was the bigger service, because a lot of folks from other denominations would come as well because they were quite unique in their service style and so on. 
But I can remember as a 14-year-old, uh, a, a teenager, one thing I couldn't understand during the altar call is that at that particular time in that particular church, there really weren't many people responding for salvation. But every Sunday night, at least at some point, maybe it was because after 10 or 15 minutes, people wanted the preacher to shut up and close the service, so they just came because he was calling, you know, calling for everything. Uh, but I, what I noticed was a lot of Christian people were always coming up to rededicate their lives to the Lord. And I had no problem with that for the person who, you know, maybe the first time you see them. But it just seemed like kind of Sunday night after Sunday night after Sunday night, a lot of the same people were coming up to, to kind of get saved again because they didn't feel saved. They didn't feel right with God. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with taking time to examine our heart before the Lord and around an altar and worship time. But I knew some of these folk, and I just knew they had this great insecurity because a lot of their faith really was gauged by how they felt. How do you like my PowerPoint? Isn't that groovy? Jason made that for me. He said, how do you like it? I said, it's groovy. That's, that's one word. But uh, hopefully it brightens you up this morning. Good. Uh, but I, I couldn't understand that, this, this idea. And I understand we can all wrestle with feelings sometimes. But even at the age of 14, I understood that whether or not I felt saved, I was saved. Whether or not I always felt like a child of God, I knew I was because I knew that I had placed my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and my, I was living for Him. Even amidst failures and successes, I was still living for Him. So I knew that I was a child of God. And that truth really affected many other areas of my walk with God over the years, that I don't always have to feel something for it to be true. Now, I'm thankful for a relationship with the living God that involves feelings. It involves emotions, just like any healthy relationship does. But I don't have to just wait for feelings to know that something is true. How many know that you don't have to feel anointed to be anointed, right? You don't have to feel righteous to be righteous. You don't even have to feel loved for you to be loved. You may not feel very loved today, but you can be loved by many people. And how many of us understand that, that if we will get away from kind of just the feeling part, the Lord knows we need the feelings, we need the intimacy, and that's wonderful. But if we can kind of get away from the feeling part, we can step out into truth much more readily and do what we know the Lord is calling us to do and trust Him to meet us there and not just wait to feel something. And again, feelings aren't bad. You see, I think a lot of us tend to live at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Would you read it with me? Romans 12, verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that's a great place to begin. Surrendering everything to God, living life God's way, that's a good thing, okay? Making our life a living sacrifice, coming before the Lord and picking up our cross and saying, Jesus, I want to be Lord of my life, that's wonderful. But I think what we miss oftentimes is verse 2, because verse 2 is where our faith actually becomes transformational. Read the rest with me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, spiritual conversion begins in my heart. It begins with surrendering my heart to the Lord. But I believe it actually becomes transformational in every facet of my life and relationships when I learn not just to surrender my heart, but I learned to surrender my beliefs. You see the difference? It's not just asking Jesus into my life and, and trust Him as my Lord and Savior, and that is true, and I'm going to heaven. But for my faith to become transformational, where I actually begin to live differently. 
It has to do with my beliefs. Jesus said in John 8, we know it well. Say it with me. You will know the truth, and the what? The truth is what will make you free. So every year in my life where I embrace and I live out of truth, freedom comes. It grows. But every area of my life where I choose instead to believe a lie, then I am not free. I remain bound. Or to put it another way, we get saved from sin when we believe in Jesus, but we actually begin to experience true freedom and true transformation when we believe like Jesus. And there's a big difference. There is a huge difference. There's such thing as saving faith, yes, when I believe in Christ as my Savior, my substitute. But I have to go beyond that. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life is to actually help me renew my mind so I begin to think like Jesus. What was Satan's first temptation to Jesus in the wilderness? Don't answer, because I know what we're thinking. The first temptation was to turn stone into bread. I believe that wasn't the first, that was the second. I'm not being nitpicky, not being cute, but here's what I mean. The thought just came to my mind, so maybe this is from the Lord. The first temptation was this, to believe a lie. Because Satan said, before he said turn the stone to bread, he said what? If you are the Son of God. You see, if Jesus didn't know who he was, the battle would have been over. Would have been over. Jesus knew who he was. He didn't bother engaging in the conversation. I am the Son of God. I know who I am. For this purpose, the Son of God, the Son of Man has come to the world to destroy your works. That's why I'm here. That's why I know who I am. I'm the Son of God. Didn't fall for the other temptations. And the same is true of you and me. We need to learn to believe like Jesus. In other words, to know our identity in Christ, to know who we are in Christ. You see, most of us have given our heart, but we haven't given him our mind. We haven't changed the way we think. And because we don't really change the way we think, other than a few exterior trappings a lot of times, I'm not saying that, that our lives aren't changed and transformed, yes, but if you understand what I'm saying, for a lot of us we're tempted, we get to a certain place. In fact, statistically, we, we learn that about two years into a person's walk with Christ is when they generally tend to taper off. They tend to kind of get a bit more lukewarm. They're not witnessing as much. They're not fervent in prayer as much. They're not in the Word. They've kind of adopted the Christian lifestyle. And it has to do with the way we think. It has to do with whether or not the truth is being incarnated in our life from day to day to day because we don't change the way that we think. And so if we don't change the way we think, what we tend to do is we adopt a Christian lifestyle. And I want you to think about this. Is it harder to change the things that we do or is it harder to change the way that we think? the way that we believe. I think most of us have changed our lifestyle since coming to Jesus, but a lot of us probably really haven't changed our beliefs. Now, what I mean by that is, yes, we believe what Jesus says about himself, and we place our faith in him, but we haven't changed the way we think about ourselves. You hear me? We believe what Jesus says about himself, but we really struggle with believing what Jesus says about ourselves, what he says about me. Let me ask you this. Do you think this morning you can change the way you believe about your past? Can you begin to believe something different other than I am who my past says that I am? Can you stop believing that? 
Can you stop believing that most people in Moncton aren't interested in hearing about Jesus? Do you realize that's a lie? Because you know what I discover? When I go out and listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting and begin conversations or love on somebody or minister on somebody, I've got to tell you something, friends. I don't say this exaggeration. I'm sure the day will come, but I have yet to be rejected. Now, maybe people who know me better in your workplace, whatever, maybe it's a different relationship. I don't know. But I've yet to have really people get angry and blow me up. They usually, if nothing else, appreciate it. How about this lie? The supernatural doesn't flow through people like me. Or here's a lie in a lot of our marriages. I can never be what God has called me to be because of certain people in my life. How about this lie? It's too late for my children. Or one more lie. My life has been ruined by that decision I made years ago by that mistake I made. Say it with me. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. i got to say hi to Jennifer and Paul. Bless you. The Dunhams are here this morning. Jennifer, stand up for a minute. Stand up quickly. This is Jennifer. She was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor in Glad Tidings. Bless you, Jennifer. Good to see you. And Paul, our wonderful husband. I don't think we had a chance to meet yet, but I feel like I know you so well. Amen. Just a little bit of relief, okay? You ready to get back on track here? John 8, 32, you will know the truth, and the truth is what will make you free. You see, the thing about deception, as simple as this may sound, is that when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Does that make sense? That's the nature of deception. You don't know you're deceived. But when you know truth, and truth exposes the deception, what happens? You're no longer deceived, Right? In fact, you're no longer really guiltless of remaining where you are because now you have truth, and with truth comes divine options. And so you have an alternative. Uh, Francis Frangipan, in his book, The Three Battlegrounds, he once said this, every area of your life that does not glisten with hope means you are believing a lie, and that area is a stronghold of the devil in your life. I love that. Every area of your life that does not glisten with hope means that you are believing a lie. And if you do nothing else as a result of this morning's message, I'd ask you to do one thing. Ask the Lord to show you where you are believing a lie. Ask him. But I would suggest before you do that you not just take a little piece of paper. Take a notebook. Because there's a whole lot of areas where you and I believe lies. And as I've mentioned many times before, those lives are, lies are so masterfully interwoven in the fabric of our everyday life by the enemy who knows what he's doing that you believe there's no other options. You believe that's the way it's always been, that's the way it's always going to be, that's the truth about you, about your circumstance, about your relationship, whatever it may be, you just have to grin and bear it. That's in the book of Hezekiah, by the way. Grin and bear it right? It's right after the verse, God helps those who help themselves, okay? In case you don't know, that's not in the Bible. Hezekiah is not in the Bible, okay? It's a book. But we believe those things. The devil makes them sound spiritual. We lay hold of them, and we believe them as the truth, and they are not the truth according to the Word of God. There are many doctrines in the Bible that you and I believe. We believe, for example, in the Trinity. 
We believe in faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works, but by faith in Christ that we are saved. Many other teachings related to God's redemptive relationship with mankind. But how many know that you can have the right doctrine and still be a mess? You can believe the right things in the sense of doctrine and yet be totally out of sync with God's relationship with you personally. Because we believe lies, don't we? About our relationships, we believe lies about other people. We believe lies about our circumstance. We believe lies about ourselves. So here's the first stake that we need to drive deep into our understanding. As we mentioned last week, our theme verse for uh, 19, 2018, 19, where have I been? 2018 is Isaiah 54 and 2. That we are to expand the place of our dwelling, the place of our tent. The Lord wants us to experience increased capacities for experiencing what he has for us, who he wants to be to us, what he wants to do through us. This is one of the first things we have to come to grips with, as we just mentioned, it is this. Any area in your life where there is not great hope, you are believing a lie. Now, that might sound too simplistic, but the key is this. Hope is what will empower you. I found it interesting looking up our English word hope. It's a derivative from, one of the words it comes from is an old Dutch word, hoop. Now, I don't speak Dutch, maybe somebody else does here, but, but the Dutch word, hoop. What I found interesting is this. The word hoop means jump to safety. Think of that for a minute. Faith, hope, means to jump to safety. In other words, to hope is not to blindly jump off a ledge hoping someone will catch you. To hope is to jump onto something that is more true, more secure than what you previously trusted in. Does that make sense? So when we hope, it's not, here we go, that's not faith. Faith is what we know. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's what we hope for. And hope is the platform that God says, jump onto this so that you will be secure. I love that old hymn. I think Pastor Christian has it down for the end of the service. Say it with me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see, my hope is not just this empty, well, if I really trust God, I'll just, ah, I hope he's there. No, 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 no. My hope is built on, right? I'm without hope. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. But Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my fortress. Jesus is my high tower. Jesus is my shelter that I run to. You see, my hope is on what I know by revelation of what, who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for me. And I stand in the finished work of Christ. So I need to understand what he has done for me. And faith is saying, Jesus, I believe you. Regardless of what I feel, regardless of what I see, regardless of who comes into my life or out of my life, you don't change. Hope, hope, jump to safety. Hebrews 10.20, that's not bad preaching, is it? Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What? without wavering. Why? Because he who has promised is faithful. He has proven himself. So you can hold fast your hope. You can stand on him. Why? Not because he's saying, hey, I'm a really good guy. You can trust me. I know we've never met. No, no. He's saying, 
here's my resume. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. I have never left you. I've never forsaken you. You can place your hope in me, a hope that will not disappoint. It's in that relationship. Now, the writer here is not talking about positive thinking. And being positive is not a bad thing. But he's talking about something greater. He's talking about biblical optimism. And he gives us the reason why. He says, for he who promised is faithful. And the more I learn that God is faithful, the more hope will fill my heart. And it is from the overflow of my heart that my mouth speaks. That I make declarations that oftentimes shape my present and my future. Another great verse is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. This is key. In believing. Why? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Right? That you might have life everlasting. You might have life in abundance. That's the heart of God for us. Nothing less. Hope in abundance. The essence of this verse, if you boil it down, Paul is saying this, may the God of hope, isn't it wonderful to know that your God's a God of hope? Isn't it wonderful when you have a God that you believe in who believes in you? Not believes in you and your fallen nature, no, no, because of righteousness of Christ in you, who you now are as a son and daughter. The great hope he has for you. In fact, he saw that even before you became a Christian. So he saw your great potential filled with the Spirit of God, the life of God. He believes in what he sees in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, may the God of hope fill you in believing. What's he saying? He's saying the moment you begin to believe him is the moment hope begins to fill your heart. There's a whole lot of voices out there, friends. They're on the TV, they're on the internet, they're around the water cool at work. They may be in your home, they may be in your own head, your own thoughts. There are many voices vying for your attention. We need to learn to hear and believe the truth. You see, I believe that increased hope in a believer's life is evidence of a mind being renewed. That's how you really tell. It's not just the cliches, the jargon that we can spout off. It's whether or not there's a hope in your heart that actually influences your life and lives around you. It's the proof that I'm actually believing truth, that I'm actually knowing the truth, and it's setting me free. Freedom that begins on the inside, and then it begins to flow out of me, and it influences things around me. I mean, just imagine for a moment that God is filling you with hope. That's Paul's prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, all joy and peace. How? In believing. In believing embracing his truth, walking in his truth, he begins to fill you with hope. And what happens? He fills you, he fills you, he fills you, it gets to your heart. What happens when hope gets a hold of your heart? You begin to believe for relationships that you thought were done for. You begin to experience a love that can bring healing and forgiveness, that can bring, because love believes all things, love hopes all things, right? All of a sudden you find yourself, hey, I can actually begin to believe again for this marriage. I can begin to believe for change in me and change in that person. Hope keeps having its way. It begins to fill up to your eyes, right? What happens? You begin to see things differently. You become an optimistic person, optic, optimistic person. You begin to see things in a different way that you didn't see before. Hope begins to fill your ears. You hear differently. There's certain things you don't pay attention to other, any, anymore. There's other things that are said that don't bother you because you've got hope. 
Hope gets up to your brain, up to your mind, and all of a sudden you find yourself thinking about things differently, thinking about circumstances, about yourself differently. That's why Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound, not just have a little bit of hope. It's not just, uh, I love the way the, the, the guy said in the video, whoever said it was a little light. <laughs> this little light of mine, it's a beautiful song. Who said it's a little light? God doesn't do things in little ways. He does little things in big ways. But he does it in, in an abundant way. And he says, I've come to give you hope that abounds in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's another reason why it's so important to be filled and ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. My hope level is a good indicator of whether I'm believing a lie or believing truth. In any area of my life that does not listen with hope, I'm believing a lie. Would you just stop for a moment and think, Holy Spirit, where do I not listen with hope? Ask yourself that. Just, just quiet your heart for a moment. This is called a, a participation sermon. Okay? Just, just don't nod off, but if you have to, just close your eyes. Where am I not glistening with hope? And I can promise you, most of us, probably something comes to mind right away. Any ear that's not glistening with hope has been deceived by a lie. That lingering sense of hopelessness. You ever drive along in your car and the check engine light comes on? Right? You know what that means? For a man, nothing. Right? For the woman, we've got to check something. For a man, no, we're good for another 50,000 kilometers. That, that always happens. It's probably just a switch or something, right? But if you're smart, what you'll do is you'll check it out. Now, you don't beat yourself up. You don't drive along, the light comes on. Oh, I'm so stupid. The light just came on. Check the engine. I'm dumb. No, you don't beat yourself up. You just either pull over your house. If you see some steam coming out of the hood or if you go to the garage, eventually get a check. That's all you do. And in the same way in all of our lives, we have seasons. We've been talking about the last few weeks. Remember, we talked about times when you feel numb. We talked about times you feel disappointed with God. We have those seasons. But in the midst of those times, it's kind of like the check light engine comes on. And what does the Lord say? You don't have to beat yourself up, but it's time to maybe pull over. Maybe you're going flat out. Maybe you're going in your own strength. Whatever the light's on, it's time to pull over and check under the hood. It's time to open up your mind to the Holy Spirit, to his word, and say, Lord, where have I been believing wrongly? And the Lord will show you that. He'll correct it. If you need an oil change, he'll, give you, he'll fill you with fresh oil. Isn't that wonderful? Man, I'm, just, I'm prophetic this morning. This is amazing. But you basically have to look at where you have been believing wrong. In fact, I've, anybody experienced this too? You know, you're just kind of like, blah, whatever the case may be. And you know the Lord is saying, man, you've got to stop believing that lie. You know, here's what I have to say about you. You just need to get a checkup. Write this down. My hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. My hopelessness about a problem is actually a bigger problem than my problem. Would you say that with me? My hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. I love that. I believe it was Steve Backlund, Steve Backlund, I recall, uh, said that once. My hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. Hope is the expectation that good is on its way. Let me give you a third scripture, 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments 
and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. That's why I say it's wonderful to be a positive person, but positive thinking is not enough because your enemy is not just physical but spiritual enemy. So we have spiritual weapons against this enemy who comes at us in ways that are unseen with the natural eye. And he says this, that with these weapons we destroy arguments. Have you ever been in a place where you just kind of argue with yourself? You may be just beating yourself up mentally, right? Or if not, you're arguing with your spouse. They don't know it, but you're brooding, you know? And you wish five minutes to go, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that. Oh, I should have said this. Or they should know how lucky they are, right? I think that all the time. If she only knew how lucky she was. Just kidding. But we get these arguments. We get these rationales going on in our mind that either justify the path we're on or that speak hopelessness into wherever we find ourselves. Paul says we bring down, we destroy those arguments. And I love the use of this word as well. Lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What does that mean? I don't know if this is the right interpretation, but it came to my mind this morning in study. Lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I think it might have something to do with ideas we get in our head that think they know better than God. Oh, here's a real insight nobody's ever thought of before. Go this way. It's a lofty idea because I know what God says, but instead, oh, this sounds brilliant. This will save me. This will, you know, help me have my own way, so I'll just kind of do this, or I'll, I don't want to spend time with God, so I'll just kind of do it this way. Lofty things. Paul said we need to bring all those things captive to obey Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting in this verse that Paul gives us some insight in the spirit realm. He gives us some instruction as to what we're, you know, how things are happening, but he only gives one command. The command is take every thought captive to obey Christ. And when he talks about these strongholds that we tear down, I don't believe he's talking about reaching into the realms of the spirit and taking hold of demonic powers and casting them down. There's a time for that. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is taking hold of your thoughts that maybe are inspired by the enemy or your own flesh. He's saying take hold of those thoughts and bring those thoughts captive to be obedient to Christ. What does that mean? It means I realize I'm thinking the wrong way. I realize that even though, and you know what I'm talking about. There's times that you've got those arguments crafted. You've got those justifications all nailed down to do what you want to do or not do what you should do, whatever. But how many of you be honest enough to say, but when I think that way, I know there's a tinge of death in it. You hear me? Right? I know I can have my own way. I know I can go my own way. But I know my thought is not full of life. It's not free. There's not joy in it. There's not hope and faith in it. It's just, well, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. Now, we can choose because God says, I set before you every time, two paths, life and death. I want you to choose life, but it's totally your choice. I want you to choose life. So we have to learn in those times and say, Lord, I want to choose life. So what he's talking about is pulling down bad belief systems because the only thing that holds us back, friends, and I've learned this over the years. It's not what happens to us. It's what we choose to believe. The past cannot hold you back. 
What holds you back are the present conclusions you have arrived at about yourself based on your past. Do you hear me? Your past really has no power. It doesn't. The only power it has is the strength you give to it. As much as you feed it, that's your choice. But it's dead. It's in the past. It's go- you can't fix it. It's- I mean, if you, if you need restitution, that's fine. If you need to repent, that's fine. Yeah, you can do that kind of stuff. But what's done is done. I don't mean that glibly. If you've heard somebody make amends as God would lead you, but, but the past is the past. You can't relive that day. So the only power that has from the past in your life is the belief system you have constructed based upon that that you're holding on to right now. There are things I did years ago, some just dumb things. And there are times today, 57 years of age, where I'll be in prayer, I'll be enjoying a wonderful time in the presence of the Lord or just going about my business, and all of a sudden that thought will come to mind. And the thought is, I can't believe I did that. And it may not even be a bad thing, just a dumb thing, a stupid thing. I can't believe. But you know what happens when I hold on to that thought? When I think about it, when I feed it, when I begin to give it life, all of a sudden what happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, all of a sudden that stupid thing means that I'm stupid now. I'm dumb now. Who am I trying to fool? What am I doing preaching the gospel? What am I doing being a pastor? You understand what I'm saying? It has absolutely no power. It's dead. It's done. Unless I feed it. Unless I allow it to become part of my identity today. Paul says God has given us powerful spiritual weapons for the specific purpose of pulling down bad belief systems so that we can establish new and godly fortresses of truth in our mind and in our life. I want to expound on it this morning. Paul says God has given us weapons, plural, to tear down these lies and to live in the truth that he promises and truths that produce freedom. There's a lot of weapons. A couple real quick ones. We know the word of God is a weapon, right? The word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, it is alive, it is active, it is full of living power. That's the word of God. And friends, that is why you don't read your Bible. It is. That's why many of us here this morning do not read our Bible on a regular basis. You know why? Because to read it involves spiritual warfare. Now, less and less as you develop the discipline and a hunger for the word, but the devil will break all hell loose to stop you from being in the word of God because he knows it's the word that will set you free, that contains truth. So if he can keep you away, he's got you in your cage, and he'll just come by and rally you once in a while to think you're involved in spiritual warfare or something, and he'll go on his way and come back later. The word of God is given to you and me as a weapon. It's a flaming sword. Intimacy with God is another weapon. Many of us have experienced times when just one loving encounter with the Lord has demolished all the lies of the enemy. That's, again, why prayer is so important. And prayer is not just, now lay me down to sleep. Prayer is not just, okay, Lord, I got 10 minutes. You know, prayer is intimacy. It can be in the quietness of your room. It can be walking down the street, in the car, whatever it may be. I, I prefer a place where I'm not distracted. You know, if you're driving, maybe not the best idea. You can talk to the Lord. But if that's really the summation of your quiet time with the Lord, um, you need more than that. You just need time that you can be in his presence. You can hear him. You can journal. You can talk to the Lord. You can worship him, whatever it may be. But there are al- always times when the Lord, we just have an encounter with him, and he's able to dissolve a lot of stuff. 
He can break strongholds. That's another weapon. God has also given us spiritual gifts. He wants the gifts of the Spirit operational in his church. Why? Because through a simple word of knowledge, he can expose a lie and break it in somebody's life. Through a word of wisdom, through a word of prophecy, whatever it may be, God wants to use those gifts so he can expose the enemy and tear him down. And another weapon that we don't talk about very much is the weapon of joy. Or more specifically, the weapon of laughter. We're all familiar with the words of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah 8 and 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What's your strength? The joy that the Lord gives you, that the Lord makes for you, that he gives to you, will be as strength to you. It's not just an empty emotion. It's a strength to you. You see, in the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was actually returned to Jerusalem to help the people of God, Israel, rebuild the walls. Ezra had gone there before Nehemiah, and under his leadership, they had rebuilt the temple. So it's kind of like salvation. The temple was restored. Worship was active again. Just like when we come to Christ, right? The temple's restored. We come alive to God, and we worship God. But unfortunately, our walk with Christ does not become transformational because the enemy always has his way. The difference is Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, and what does he rebuild? He rebuilds the walls. Because even though the people could worship God in the temple, there's no walls, so the enemy comes and goes as he wants. He pillages, he impoverishes the people of God. Nehemiah comes, builds the walls, fortifies the city, and now the people of God have an identity. They have stability, they have security, they have strength and prosperity. And you see, in the same way in the believer's lives, so many times we focus on giving our life to Christ. That's the beginning. But the transformation has to do with rebuilding the walls. And the walls have to do with putting back our personality, our identity, understanding who we are in Christ. It has to do with not only believing in Jesus, but learning to believe like Jesus. And when I begin to believe like Jesus, all of a sudden, the devil can't come and go in my life anymore like he wants to. When he comes to me, it doesn't work anymore if he says, if you really are the daughter of God, if you really are a son of God, this wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen, this wouldn't happen. Instead, I say, the walls are up, I'm secure, you can't come and go anymore. I know who I am in Christ, and greater is he who is in me than you are. But that is based on the truth of the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that He has His way in me that hope begins to abound. And by the way, do you know what the name Nehemiah means? This will blow you away. Comforter. Isn't that a God thing? What we see God doing through Nehemiah is the exact same work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine, restoring our strength and our identity that the enemy can't have his way anymore. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Don't stop there. In believing. That's the key. In believing the truth. So that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, there's more I could say this morning. Our time is gone. I'm just going to put a comma there and ask the musicians to join me, if you would. I think maybe the week after next, I'm away next Sunday. Pastor Kristen is on, I believe. Um, we're going to talk more about this idea of joy and laughter, even more specifically. But before we leave, I want you once again just to think about and ask yourself the simple question. 
What is one area of my life that does not glisten with hope? What is one area where I have believed a lie? Maybe you believe the lie, I've always been this way. It's the way I'm always going to be. Maybe you believe the lie, my marriage has always been this way. This is the way it's always going to be. The lie that is too late for my children, as I said earlier. The lie that God can't really use people like me a whole lot. I believe what he does, and I hear other testimonies. That's wonderful, and I support that, and I applaud that, but that doesn't happen to people like me. What lie have you believed? And one of the ways you know it's a lie is that God has placed a seed of hope in you already for that. There's a seed of hope that says, oh, man, wouldn't it be great if? You ever have that hope? Wouldn't it be wonderful if? I know things are this way, but, man, wouldn't it be great if? I know the relationship is this way. I know my finances are that way. I know my personal habits are whatever. But, oh, you know, I hear that testimony. I watch that video. I hear a song, and, oh, man, would... God does not give us hope to disappoint us. His hope is truth that says, this is what I have for you. This is what I see in you. Hope is the proof that you're believing truth, and that truth sets you free. Friends, I don't believe we always need a new set of circumstances. We just need a new set of beliefs. We just need a new set of beliefs. We just need to begin to believe like Jesus believed. Amen? He said, you will know the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus, help me to walk in your way. Help me to walk in your truth. And Lord, I'll experience your life, which, by the way, is in abundance and fullness. Will you bow your heads with me?